Jesus speaking. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to, now to you, I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast that you, what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with an, a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we just are so grateful that our lives are different. Those of us that know you, You've called us to be different. You've called us to be holy and separated unto you and set aside for your holy use. And Father, we're so grateful that you never stop working in our lives to make us more and more like Christ. So we pray, Lord, that this passage would be used for that purpose this morning. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher. We pray, Father, that you would help us to have hearts opened for your instruction, not just for head knowledge, but to be doers of your word as well, by your grace and by your power. Speak to your servants now. We're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Jesus is dictating. John is writing. He's already told John to write these things down. I'm sure for John it was a challenge being overwhelmed by all of these things, being tempted just to be looking at Jesus and receiving this revelation and forgetting to write things down. You ever call somebody up on the phone and you forget who you're calling? Sometimes, you know, oh, yeah, and you're trying to, how you doing? <laughs> you know, uh, what's going on? Trying to, their voice, get the, so you can recognize who you just called. Maybe that's just me, okay? Uh, but you want to write those things down ahead of time uh, sometimes because you may not remember in the moment. And so sometimes when you're going through something and you're being overwhelmed, uh, you can lose your thinking faculties, and, and I'm sure John was challenged with that as well as he's overwhelmed by this revelation that Jesus is um, revealing about himself. Now, as we're in the middle of, Jesus is assessing seven specific, historical, real churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, knowing that the fullness of what he would have to say to these seven churches would be all that any church in any age would need to hear, of course, in addition to what the rest of the New Testament says related to having the church that Jesus wants us to be. 
And so it's not just his omniscience that knows what's going on in these churches. He said already, and he's revealed to us, he's walking in the midst of the seven churches. He's there. Jesus goes to church. He's here in our midst. Jesus himself is here in our midst. He said, when two or more gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So he's here, and he's listening, and he's watching, and he's assessing. And so it brings sobriety and, and a healthy fear and respect knowing that Jesus is watching us and assessing the church, and it matters to him how the church functions. And as I've already mentioned, no leader or no person as part of a church is free to determine what the church should be about uh, according to their own desires or dictates or whatever. God has laid it out in his word what the church is supposed to be about. And the more we get confused about that, the less Uh, there is for the potential of disciples being made. And that's the purpose of when the church gathers, is for disciples to be made so that we can be mature enough to obey the Great Commission out there and preach the gospel. Thus, having people come to know him, to be brought in, to be made into disciples, and then the cycle continues. So Jesus is having a definite opinion about uh, what should go on in the church, and so he sees it all. And it's it's interesting that we're going to get into some churches here in a few weeks that even actually, I think next week, where they're self-deceived related to their spiritual condition. And they have fruit, they're bearing fruit and so forth. There's some things outwardly that people would look at and say, that's a healthy church. And they'd even say among themselves, we're healthy in, in, in these ways. But Jesus has an entirely different assessment, which shows us that we need the potency of God's word washing over our lives, washing over our church family and so forth, so that the clarity of his word and the potency of his word can come through and redirect us. And so we should uh, welcome that. The church of Thyatira was likely the smallest church of these seven churches. It's a very kind of a small town. Um, And so you have, what's interesting though, is this church has the longest letter of all the seven. It's the smallest numeric, and that just shows that God doesn't, isn't concerned with numbers supremely. It, he doesn't rank how important or how much instruction or how much revelation he's going to give related to a church based on their size or whatever. He loves every church the same. He loves every, every person within the church the same. And so they, this church, their main problem, and we'll get into the specifics of it in a moment, but their main problem was... Uh, they were tolerating something that they shouldn't be tolerating. And we hear about that term all the time in our culture. We have to be tolerant. We have to be tolerant. We have to be tolerant. It used to mean that you need to respect the right of others to have opposing views. But it's kind of devolved, in my estimation, as pure, uh, you know, from the pit of hell where you're supposed to now accept other opposing views. And who are you to say anything contradictory but all opposing views can't all be true at the same time. Either they're all wrong or one's right if they contradict each other. And so we, we, we hear all about this, this tolerance and so forth. But what's interesting is that people that claim that we need to be tolerant so much are usually the most intolerant towards people with intolerance. And that doesn't make sense, does it? You can't be intolerant towards intolerance and call yourself tolerant. It's, it's not right. It's not more. There's something immoral about that. So, they, you know, I've always wanted to see a bumper sticker that said that. And that just might cause more fights and traffic, I don't know, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it's ridiculous. So they were tolerating something that they shouldn't have been tolerating. The city of Thyatira is about 40 miles southeast of Pergamos that we looked at last week. 
It was an agrarian area, in other words, an agricultural area, um, and they were famous for the manufacture of purple dye. You may remember in Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul wanted to go into this area. He wanted to go into Asia Minor, but he, the Lord uh, forbid him to go, and he received a vision, a man from Macedonia that was imploring him to come there. He crossed the Aegean Sea to Philippi. Now, Philippi uh, didn't even have a synagogue, so there wasn't 10 male Jews in the area because that would be the minimum that you'd have to have to have a a synagogue. So he found some women by the river because that was the next place that they would go to worship and found a woman named Lydia. And we're told that she was from Thyatira and she was a dealer or a seller of purple. Now, purple, they produced this, got this purple dye from either some kind of clam or crustacean that they would squeeze really hard and would get one little drop of purple dye, which was not fun for that that little fella, I'm sure. Uh, but there was also a, um, a plant that they could produce, and it was really, really hard to get enough dye to, to dye anything. So only the wealthy would be able to afford something that was dyed purple. So if you saw someone in the marketplace in that time, and they were wearing purple, uh, they would, they, you would know immediately that they were wealthy. So that's what Thyatira was known for. Now, we're, we don't have a biblical record of who brought the gospel to the city. It could have been Lydia, because she received the Lord. She could have gone back to her hometown and preached the gospel, but we're not told. There's no record of that. And this was a very small and insignificant city as far as the world standards. It wasn't on a trade route like we've been seeing a lot of these cities that these churches were located. It, it was very insignificant. But I love the fact that no city is insignificant to God. And no person is insignificant to God. Another characteristic of this city is that they had these trade guilds, where, which were like labor unions. So there was a labor union or a trade guild for just about every area of commerce in the city. Now that wouldn't be all that big of a deal or significant, but they were very much engaged in idolatry, these trade guilds. So every different trade guild had a different false god that they would worship. And they would have these meetings, they would have these feasts, and they would worship these pagan gods at these feasts. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but if you're a Christian, you can't do that. And now if you are saying, I can't do that as a Christian, well, if you're in the trades, let's say you're a business owner. You won't be able to find workers. If you're a worker, it would be hard for you to find work because you're not submitting yourself to kind of how things were set up. And so they would party and drink and so forth and get drunk, and they would, they would eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols and, and all of this. And so these believers are right in the middle of this dilemma because, because in the situation, if they were to, to compromise, they could lose the way that they feed their families. Now, it, it's easy to look at these things as kind of just words on a page, but these are real families. These are real lives. If you're a father here, just think of not being able to provide for your family, and you're seeing your family suffer because you won't engage in, in, in this idol worship at these trade guilds and your family is suffering. That's a real situation. That's, a real, that's real people there. But it would get worse than that. They would, they would worship these false gods and many, many times the, the expression of worship of these false gods was sexual immorality. So there would be in sexual immorality encouraged and engaged in and so forth. And so this was the dilemma that the Christians in Thyatira were up against. And every person in every city at every time in, in church history has something unique, unique in our lives 
that we're going to have to deal with and struggle with and work through and, and navigate. And God has all the grace, as we sang about, has all the grace for it. Here Jesus recognizes their, their dilemma. He's going to speak to them and encourage them and so forth. But he's also going to warn them. And we need to take every warning and every encouragement to heart. So he begins in verse 18. He says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. So he begins, as he does with all these churches, to the angel of the church of Thyatira. And an angel, as we've gone over, means messenger. So he's not speaking to an angelic being that's overseeing these churches. He's speaking to the human messenger, the head elder, or the senior pastor, whatever it is. And so he's holding that person accountable for conveying the message, of course, but also to implement these things. And, and um, it, it's, it's a great thing and a great privilege, but it's a great responsibility. Now he also adds a self-assessment. He says, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. Now, on all these self-descriptions that Jesus gives of himself, usually it has to do with something that they're losing sight of related to himself, or they need to increase their knowledge of or their awareness of, and he's quoting something that he's revealed about himself from chapter 1. But this term, Son of God, is, is one of the first times, and there'll be others as we look through other letters to these different churches, where he, it's not contained in chapter 1. He doesn't call himself the Son of God in chapter 1. This is unique. And he's referring to himself related to his deity, which encourages us. And by the way, there's no other Son of God reference in the whole book of Revelation. This is it, Son of God. He's mostly referred to as the Lamb in the book, as we've already seen. So the Son of God is mentioned here, and it's supposed to show us and demonstrate to us that a related to his, his, uh, his deity and have to have reverence for the fact that he is God. Jesus' existence didn't begin in that manger. He's co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He never had a beginning. Jesus never had a beginning. He's God in human flesh. And so he, when he reveals that he's the Son of God to them, it's recognizing or referring to his deity. And we need to reference that and to note that but he also says eyes like a flame of fire and this is a reference from chapter one which you know it just communicates that he sees everything what does fire do fire consumes and and unrestrained fire consumes everything <laughs> it doesn't leave one thing left unburned um, wildfires they leave nothing behind in other words he's saying I see everything. I don't miss one thing. Fire consumes everything, and I see everything. My vision consumes everything that's going on in your life, around your life, concerning your life, and so forth. He sees and judges it all. It's easy to think in our culture that as long as I'm a little bit more holy than the rest of the culture, then I'm being a, a good witness <laughs> to the culture. But God's word is the standard, not the culture. And when I recognize that he sees everything and he's assessing my heart and he, he sees every thought, he's going to reference that in a moment. He sees every motive that I have. That's why when people say, well, you know, I don't sin very often every few days. It's like, wait a minute here, buckaroo. I mean, think about this. The standard is perfection. One wrong motive 
I mean, we're talking doing things that we shouldn't do. We're talking not doing things that we should do. Motivation. I mean, we just forget how high that standard is. The standard doesn't go down just because we're Christians. We're just not saved by our works. But the standard of holiness remains the same because he remains the same. So he sees it all. But then he adds his feet like fine brass. Now, brass always symbolizes judgment in the Bible. Always. So he's saying, I see everything, I consume everything with my vision, and my feet are like fine brass. Feet represent action or movement in the Bible. You may remember that he says in other places in the scripture, oh, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He's saying, you're beautiful as you act and as you move and bring the gospel to people. It's, it's an expression of action. It speaks of the action or movement of someone willing to obey the Great Commission when they bring the good news to someone. Jesus says that movement, that action is beautiful. Because I've looked at my feet recently, and they're not all that pretty. <laughs> so he's revealing something about himself that's supposed to produce sobriety, a fear of God. And, and that's what he does by revealing that about himself. Now notice he commends this church in verse 19. He says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So he says, I know your works. He says it multiple times in this letter. Again, he sees it all. There's nothing that he misses our works are very important to god ephesians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 says he's created us in christ jesus for good works that we should walk in them that he's prepared them in advance that we should walk in them so very important god's assessing those things he sees it all and it's it's healthy for us to have that continuously wash over our hearts and wash over our minds. But he says, I not only know your works, I know your love. See, so there's some good things. Even though this church was compromising in ways, they were allowing things to go on and tolerating things they shouldn't tolerate, they still had love for God and love for one another. Jesus tells us to love just about more than anything else. And, he, and, and it's something that we have to be told over and over again because we're so self-consumed. <laughs> At least I am. When I, get, when I get mad in the mirror, what I look like, I'm mad because I'm con- concerned about myself. It's not like I, no one hates themselves in terms of how they look and they're bothered because they don't care about themselves. It's because they care about themselves that they're mad of how bad they look. But then he adds to that faith, and it's really talking about faithfulness your faithfulness. You're believing in God, you're trusting in God, and because of that, you're obeying what he's called you to obey and trusting him. And then he says patience. I know I'm skipping ahead of uh, service, but I'm doing that for a reason. Patience is bearing up under something that's hard. The picture is like an animal that you're loading up. You know, you don't really do that for, you know, little dogs and things you know or even big dogs maybe you do but the picture is like an ox or a donkey you're loading a burden on an animal like that and it's supposed to carry those things and so he's saying you've been patient there's been things that you've had to bear under that have been difficult and I'm and those things are great keep doing those things keep being patient keep allowing me to give you the strength to to make it through all that you're facing but then he does say your service. And this is beautiful because this church, this church of Thyatira, 
They were demonstrating this love. It's not just saying I love you or having good feelings towards somebody, but biblical love acts. Biblical love makes a difference. It's proactive. It's not a, merely a feeling. It's, 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 it's a commitment. It's doing, agape love is doing what's best for the other person, even at its own expense. And so that is expressed through service. We can't be like Jesus if we're not serving, because Jesus is a servant. That's who, who he is. And so it speaks to the, the, the blessing of having the privilege of being a part of what the Lord's doing in, in making lives better. That's what the best definition of a servant is, making someone else's life better or easier. And that's what we're called to do. Every single one of us in the body of Christ is called to serve the rest of the body of Christ in some capacity. Every single one of us has been given at least one spiritual gift, and many of us many spiritual gifts. And we're supposed to use that spiritual gift to build up the body. That's in part how disciples are made. When you look at Ephesians 4, when we see the, the office gifts, the leaders that are given to the body of Christ for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, there's also another aspect to that related to disciple making, and that is everybody using their gifts and building one another up and doing their share. That's the, ver- that's the verbiage. So that's important for us to think about it. If we're not serving in some capacity, we need to take those things before the Lord. Because a fruitful church is a church that's serving. And, and so take that, uh, before, if you're not serving somewhere, take that. And it doesn't have to be here. It could be somewhere else where you're serving the body of Christ. Obviously, the, the body of Christ is much larger than this fellowship. Uh, but, you know, take those things to prayer. We're supposed to labor for the Lord and, and expanding his kingdom. Now notice he says, as for your works, the last are more than the first. So that shows that they were increasing in good works. So not only is our works important to God, but it's important to God that our works are increasing, that we're not staying the same or worse yet, going backwards in our works. He wants us to be growing and being stretched. And so often when we are presented with something, we think of our inadequacy. How many of us have, when related to serving, have like, you got the wrong person? I mean, I've done that so many times. Like, you mean me? I mean, talking, you talking to me? And I don't really talk to the Lord in a, like an Italian, you know, accent or whatever like that. But, I mean, you got the wrong person. But you see, all the way through the scriptures, I mean, you have the servants of the Lord kind of making a case to God that he's made a mistake. No, he knows who he's getting. And he knows that he's choosing the foolish thing, things of this world so that he can confound the wise in this world. So when he does a great work through your life, you're not lifted up. And in your own mind or other people lifting you up. And so he knows who he's getting. So that's a, that's a searching phrase for us at the end of verse 19. That our works need to be more now than they were in the first. And, and so let the Spirit speak to you related to that. I know he's speaking to me related to that. Now notice in verse 20, Jesus begins his rebuke uh, or the correction of the church. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So this Jezebel, who is this Jezebel? Now, Jezebel, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, she was the, the, the wife of King Ahab who was uh, one of the kings of Israel. The, the, the kings of Israel never had uh, a righteous king. And, and she was from another country. She came in, and she uh, 
basically brought a whole new priesthood of false gods and, and worship Ashtoreth and also Baal and so forth, and she was very, very wicked. Uh, Elijah had to deal with her, and, and Elisha did deal with her by God's grace and by his power. So uh, she came in there. So that's the history. She was wicked. and she, she, So this lady here, and I don't believe her name was really Jezebel. It could be. I mean, I guess it's possible. But she had such a negative connotation in the Old Testament. It's very unlikely. I mean, that's, it's just like, how many Judases do you see? Little Judases running around. or you know, I've never I've dedicated to the Lord a few babies. I've never had, you know, said... Um, we're blessed to be able to dedicate little Jezebel to the Lord <laughs> this morning. You know, we've never had to do that. Uh, so it's not likely that she, her name was, but, but what she represented, what she was, uh, how she was being used by the enemy was very much like the Old Testament Jezebel. So I believe this is a real woman. He's referring to someone that's really there in the church. And notice she calls herself a prophetess there in the middle of verse 20. So she calls herself that, but Jesus never does. Jesus notes that who calls herself. He's like, I didn't call her a prophetess. She's not, she may be for, you know, she may be calling herself that, but she is definitely not profiting anybody, (laughs) um, and she's not a prophetess. So that means that she was self-appointed. Now, self-appointed anybody in the body of Christ uh, are dangerous because God's grace and God's calling is not on their life for that. And they, are, they have a self-focus. They're wanting to do what they want to do in the body of Christ to, for their own gain, to get something from it supremely. But that should never be the motivation for why we do anything for the Lord. We should be doing things for the Lord because we're called to it. God's called us, and we have a love for Him that we want to express through service, and we want to love His people. That's the reason, that the motivation the greatest commandment. That's the motive. Great, you know, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the motivation for service. And God's called each of us to a different place in the body of Christ to make a difference. But if we call ourselves, it's, it's a danger to us and to others. And so we can't have an inward motivation. But that's what she was all about. We're also told in verse 20 what she taught. And it did not line up with the word of God. So all, all uh, especially prophets, we're told in 1 Corinthians 14, need to be tested. All prophets need to be tested. What they say by the word of God. Just because someone says, I'm a prophet, and they're, I'm anointed, I'm on Christian television, you should listen to me, I have a bunch of titles behind my name, I have a big church, or all these things, doesn't mean a thing. What comes out of their mouth has to line up with Scripture. And the fruit that comes from their life needs to line up with scripture. It's not just what I say, it's what I do in the ministry uh, that God is uh, doing through my life. So everything needs to be tested by Acts chapter uh, 17, 11, where the Bereans were testing what the apostle Paul said by the scriptures daily. He wasn't threatened. He didn't say, who are you to test me? I'm the apostle Paul. None of that. He welcomed it, and he knew that that was a protection for both them and him. Also notice in verse 20, there was two aspects to her false teaching. First, sexual morality, and secondly, idolatry. So basically, she was saying, in addition to probably many other things, it's okay to partake in that sexual morality at those trade uh, guild meetings. Don't worry about that. That's okay. And so that was, of course, against God's word. Now, I believe as we get closer and closer to the end, 
of human history or man's rule, I believe the church is going to be influenced by the world more and more to cave on the standard of God's word related to sexual purity. Pretty soon it'll be okay to live together, to have premarital sex, um, all these things. I mean, there's so many. I mean, if you once you cave on homosexual marriage, then everything else is fair game. And so that's just going to be continuing as time goes by, and we're going to see more and more churches cave to that. But we have to be okay. We have to be searching our own hearts. The standard is the standard related to God's word. We can't uh, cave on that. We have. We can't compromise. And related to those leaders that lead that, woe to them. God would say, woe to you that are misleading the church related to that. But she also expressed that it was okay to engage in idol worship, just like the Jezebel of the Old Testament. So she's saying, when you go to these guild, trade guild meetings, it's okay to engage in this sexual morality and so forth, and also this idol worship. Now for us, we may not, well, I'm not really an idolater. I don't have little tiny gods set up in my house that I'm bowing down to or burning incense to. Uh, That's not an issue for me. But what we need to know is that idolatry is of the heart. So anything that is above God in my life, my master passion in my life is my God. And anything that I've put in front of God, that's idolatry. And God connects idolatry and sexual morality many times in the New Testament, he links those t- together. So there is a connection, but, there, but it could be anything that I put before God. It could be a hobby. It could be family. It could be my job. It could be uh, anything that I put before the Lord. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Take up your cross daily. If anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. He's the prize. He's not a means to an end. Jesus is not a rabbit's foot that we rub. I'm totally dating myself there. When's the last time you see a rabbit's foot around? Not even at gas stations anymore. What's wrong with these people? But uh, I'm just kidding. But, you know, it's, he's not a good luck charm. He's not something that I just go to for good luck and just add Jesus to my existing life and then everything will be great. He says, lose your life. Don't add him to your sinful nature. Uh, crucify your sinful nature through him. And so idolatry, we, he, Jesus said, if anyone loves mother or brother or father or husband more than me, he's not worthy of me. And if anyone doesn't hate those relationships, and he's talking about a comparable love, if your love for them is less than me, for, love for them is more than your love for me. It's like hating me. He has a very high standard of his expectations of allegiance to him. So his church should not be found. He's talking to his church right now. Not just this one, but to ours and all churches throughout the age. Serve me alone. I'm a jealous God. I only want you to serve me and nothing else. No internet sin, no uh, mis handling my funds, uh, your time, all those things. I need to be first in that relationship. And if it's not first, it's idolatry. The interesting thing about Thyatira and what they were dealing with is that they weren't really dealing with an outward attack. A re- we're not, we don't hear of a read of a record of religious persecution like we've read already with these other churches. The, the, the attack was from within. And that's very common within the history of God's people. We looked at 
Balaam. And Balaam giving the secret to Balak that if you just get them to compromise their own walk, then God will be forced to withdraw his grace in that way and they'll be able to be conquered. And that happened all through the Old Testament. Whenever they were walking closely with, with God in obedience to him, no one could touch him. They were indestructible. But once they compromised from within, that was the key. That was the Achilles heel. And so he says the same thing to us. Because it's still true. If you can't beat him, join him. And if the, if the devil can't beat us from without, he'll, he'll get in with it. And that's why Paul warned the Ephesian elders that men from among them will come in, not sparing the flock. He says, even some among you, he's talking to like those people that are listening at that moment are going to come and take, try to take disciples away for themselves. So it's, it's searching for us. Why was Jezebel in the Old Testament able to exert such destructive behavior? What was the cause? Who could have stopped Jezebel in the Old Testament? King Ahab. See, it was weak leadership. Her husband was wicked. And one of the expressions of that wickedness is that he wasn't willing to stop his wife from wickedness. So in our homes, the men have to step up and be leaders and and lead their family. Not that their wives are Jezebels. I'm not saying that. Uh, But I'm just, there's a leadership aspect. And what's true of of a family and what's true of a family unit is also true of a church. Why was this Jezebel in this church, in the church of Thyatira, able to have such influence and destructive behavior going on and the answer is the same thing that Ahab did is weak leadership notice the word allow in verse 20 you see that because you allow that woman Jezebel see that's why we see the that's how we see the weak leadership sometimes people will criticize leaders because they will stand up for the truth and tell people to knock it off sometimes for just promulgating and, 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 and you know, distributing or promoting false teaching. And they get mad. But praise the Lord for those type of leaders. Pray for leaders in the body of Christ to have a backbone to stand up for what's true and to stick with the word of God. Every church needs to have the boldness to stand up for the truth and not allow false teaching and false influences to go be to be to be an influence now notice in verse 21 jesus gave her time to repent he says and i gave her time to repent of her sexual morality and she did not repent and i love this we see god's grace right there jesus is saying i gave her time god always gives us time to repent and you say well how long because i want to know how long i have and he's not going to tell us that how long you have until he allows you to reap what you're sowing and to discipline you. But that time comes. Have you ever seen someone being under God's discipline because of rebellion? And you see it go on and on and you're just waiting, praying for them, trying to be an encouragement to them, trying to reach out to them. And then one day, boom, crash and burn. There was a, that, that is a big deal when that happens. It's an ex, it shows us that God was extending grace all that time. Maybe you're here today and you know you need to repent of something. You're in willful disobedience. God's giving you time to repent. This is an expression of his grace to you right now that you're hearing this. You need to repent. 
You need to come back because there will come a time where he's going to be forced to allow you to reap the consequences of your decision and he's going to discipline you because he loves you and because he doesn't want you to hurt other people. Now notice in verses 22 and 23, he sentences her for her crimes. He says, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. So this woman, who he's referring to as Jezebel, because she's doing the same types of things that the Old Testament Jezebel did, her time was up. God had given her time to repent, but she refused. So now he's going to judge her and punish her. And so, and remember, his eyes, flaming fire, his feet like fine brass, it's all communicating judgment and, and, and that he's going to take care of what he needs to take care of. And so he's going to uh, take her out. And so God is sovereign. He has the right to do that. That's not just Old Testament. Ananias and Sapphira were taken out. Not because they didn't give everything, that the standard was that they had to give everything. They were acting like they were giving everything, but they weren't. That was hypocrisy. At the very beginning of the church, God knew that that would cause such damage in the beginning of, that, of, of the early church. He judged that. That's New Testament. That's not, that's not just, um, and those are people that I believe knew the Lord. So God judged them and, and disciplined them. And what did that do? It caused fear in the rest of, of the church. And the people respected believers because the standard was the standard. Now, those who committed sexual adultery or spiritual adultery, and that's what I believe it is he's referring to there, um, they still had time. That's what this is communicating. They had give, he had given her time to repent. She hadn't, and so now she's going to judge them. But the ones that she had led into spiritual adultery, they still have a little bit more time. Again, showing God's grace, showing his mercy, but still, if they don't repent, then their, their end is going to be like hers. And so God doesn't use favoritism. He doesn't treat some people better or whatever. He treats everybody the same. And judgment begins in the house of the Lord, we're told. And so he comes and he deals with us. He convicts us. And he'll, he'll, he'll allow us to cut our life short if we allow it. And, and so that judgment is, um, we can count on that. And it's, again, it's a, it's a purifying effect for the rest of the body of Christ. Because what happens when someone falls now, there was a, a, a pastor of a very large Calvary Chapel in the last few months that fell. And what did that do in the body of Christ? It did many things. But, I mean, I've spoken to many leaders, I've, and I know what happened in my own heart. When that happened, it caused a, a, a fear, in a sense, of going to the Lord and, Lord, keep me where I need to be. Keep me walking closely with you. I could fall just like anybody else. There's, when you see that, it, it's a purifying effect in the body of Christ, and we need to stay close to the Lord at all times. None of us are immune to falling. I fear my role. I don't want to stumble. I don't want to fail. I, and that drives me to the Lord so closely because I know myself, and I know you know yourself as well. It's a great, uh, it's a great exhortation for us. Now notice in verse 23, 
he, he does this in part as a message to all the churches. Because when we see God discipline his children, again, it's supposed to produce sobriety. So he says, now I say, to, now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine. So there were many that didn't go along with this stuff. See, there's always a remnant in every church. No matter how bad a church is, there's always a remnant of people walking closely with the Lord in obedience to the Lord. So he doesn't want them to misunderstand and think that he thinks the whole church is made up of these people that are engaged in this false teaching and and sin. And he says, who have not known the depths of Satan. So that's how he uh, assesses her teaching. As they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. So I'm not going to add anything to you for, for you to do. Just keep holding fast, which means be faithful, stand strong, stand where, you, where you're supposed to be, and, and occupy till I come. And that's an encouragement for us. Maybe you're here and you're like, well, I don't, I don't really think I have any kind of a, a, um, adulterous heart or idolatrous heart or anything like that. He would say to us and to you to keep being faithful then, just to keep following him, keep serving him. He sees that. He, it blesses his heart, your obedience. And then he says, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nation. So every single time he communicates, there's an overcome, a blessing associated with the overcomer. And he defines that by saying, keeps my works until the end. It's not so much how we begin, it's how we finish. I love Pastor Chuck, how he finished well. He served the Lord for almost 50 years in Calvary Chapel and 17 years before that in another denomination. He was in the pulpit the Sunday before he passed away. He finished well. God's called us to be faithful all the way to the end. This coming week, I'm going to be meeting with some uh, fellowship group leaders that I was uh, served with at... um, when I first became a Christian, and we were all fellowship group leaders, the youth group was pretty big, and we had, a fel- we had I think, four or five fellowship groups within the youth group, and that was my first opportunity to serve and be a- become a fellowship group leader and so forth, and we're meeting for the first time, like a little reunion this week. There's four or five of us, uh, plus our families and so forth, and it's over 20 years later now, and all of us, by God's grace, still serving, still being fruitful by God's grace, all is a blessing to the Lord and a blessing to God. How he sees us finish is a blessing to him. And then he says, to him I will give power over the nations. And he's going to quote Psalm 2 where he says, verse 27, he says, he shall rule them with an iron rod. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels as I have received from my father and I will give him the morning star. So in Psalm 2, we're told of Jesus's reign when he comes back after the seven-year tribulation. He's going to come back for a thousand-year reign before the great white throne judgment, where unbelievers are resurrected in bodies to receive judgment. And all whose name are not found written in Lamb's book of life at that point will be thrown into the lake of fire with the false prophet and the devil and so forth. So there's going to be a thousand-year reign where we are going to be ruling and reigning with him. So I don't know if you can put in for, you know, Hawaii or the Caribbean or wherever. Um, I don't know how many people are going to be interested in Antarctica, but I mean, I'm sure there's someone to rule and reign there. But there's, 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 
a ruling and reigning for the overcomer. He's going to dispatch us and entrust us with ministry and oversight in the millennium. And that is a blessing. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't need us. But he lets us be a part of what he's doing. Just like any loving father loves his children, working with him on a project. Not that, he, that they're the most qualified person in the neighborhood, but he loves them and wants them to work alongside of him. And that's the heart that we see. Now he ends with an encouragement to appropriately receive spiritually what he has revealed in verse 29. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we have to be discerning spiritually what he's saying. Is he speaking to us regarding something? We need to heed that and listen to it and act upon it and obey it. Unbiblical tolerance towards false teaching, sexual morality, and idolatry shouldn't be tolerated in the body of Christ. We should have no other teaching than Christ. We should have no other physical intimacy than our spouses. We should have no other master passion than Christ. Nothing before him. No rival thrones, as the song says. Pure love and commitment and worship to him. He's, he's worthy of nothing less. Also, our work should be greater than they were than in the first, in the beginning of our walk. And they should be increasing, growing in good works. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet like fine brass. He sees it all. He's ready to discipline us like any good father would be. He hates to do it. Hates to do it. But if he's forced to, his love will do it. And so that should be a searching, sobering thing for all of us. Now, relate, lastly, related to tolerance. In our homes, we have this pressure to cave to the culture and to all the pressures, especially as parents, to cave to the standard of God's word. And the Lord would say to us this morning to keep that standard, his word, to not compromise, to keep that standard there and to know that all of heaven's resources are behind us in that. And to depend on him for that is all that we need to keep that standard where it needs to be. He wants a holy people. He's a jealous God. He's always been a jealous God. Let's give him all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Worship him with all of our lives. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and how it searches us. We need your word to be what it is. Thank you that you're so faithful to give it and to, and to back it up by your spirit's ministry in our hearts and in our lives. So you've spoken to us a lot, Lord, and we, we want to just heed those things. Help us to discern what you're speaking individually to us. We want to have ears to hear. We want to spiritually discern. Help us, Lord, to be doers, Lord, and put these things into practice. And help us to encourage one another and pray for one another that we, could, that we can obey your word. Help us to exhort one another daily, Lord, especially as we see the day approaching. We commit all of this to you, and we thank you for the privilege of revelation. And we thank you in Jesus' name.